I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge, and in this podcast, I sit down with Dr. Vikram Mansharmani, an author, business advisor, global trend watcher, and lecturer at Harvard University. Dr. Mansharmani spoke during the Council's Virtual Insurance Leadership Forum in October 2020, and in this conversation, we follow up on the predictions he made then and ask him to dive further into topics including the cross-currents of the world economy, U.S. politics, technology, cyber, and healthcare. Give it a listen. So back in October of last year, 2020 now, you discussed several key root causes for our current economic crosswinds that came down basically to too much supply of goods and not enough demand. Some of the trends you mentioned, population demographics, technology, alternative energy sources, don't seem to be changing. So first, can you briefly describe these dynamics and then how can we prepare for what this brings? Yes, so your, your question's a great one uh, because those trends that I discussed earlier, uh, I guess last year, uh, really were four mega trends that I think are affecting virtually everything in the world. And uh, you know, the bottom line summary of those four trends is in fact, as you've said, that the world has too much supply and not enough demand. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's backpedal a little bit. Uh, the first trend I talked about was a transition that was underway in China, that China had led uh, the economy as an investment-led story and was moving towards a consumption-led story. The result was China uh, was revealing to the world a lot of excess capacity and things like lead, steel, copper, zinc, construction workers, etc. Uh, so that was number one, an excess supply that was being unveiled. Um, and frankly, China was trying to use that extra supply and extra capacity in pro programs and projects like the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but, you know, we can come back to it. The point was that there was excess supply. Uh, the second development was what was happening in technology, something we all are highly aware of, uh, that technology is enabling us to do more with the same or fewer inputs. Uh, the result is more supply, uh, all else equal. And then the third dynamic I talked about was what was happening in the energy uh, sphere and the energy industry. And I'm not just talking about alternative energy and sort of the advancements in solar, wind, and, uh, and other alternative energies, but I was also talking about what was happening with fracking and shale and sort of the emergence of um, you know, uh, new hydrocarbon available sources. And so the net there is energy supplies were dramatically being expanded. Uh, again, summary, more supply. And the fourth trend I talked about was really the aging of the world's largest economies. And when we look at the world's largest economies, uh, what we see is the United States is aging. We see that um, you know, uh, Europe is aging. We see that China's aging. We see Japan is aging, Russia's aging. And so what we find is that when individuals move to, um, when they move to uh, fixed incomes, effectively enter retirement, they spend less. And so that is a negative demand story. And so when we put these four key trends together, what we have is more supply, more supply, more supply, and less demand. The result of which is deflationary pressure, not inflationary pressure. Uh, and so that creates complications for the world, many of which stem from that fundamental problem of too much supply relative to demand. Why does that create problems? Well. Fundamentally, it causes issues such as you know a fertile political ground to, that sort of lays the groundwork for for populism and and sort of nationalism to rise because the middle class gets left behind, greater inequality comes to bear, and people want to blame someone, you know, and so 
the political leaders that are opportunistic, perhaps, I don't know if that's a fair word, but are opportunistic, they jump forward and say, hey, you know what? It's not your fault, Mr. Middle Class. It's their fault. And who's they? It's another country. And so globalization goes in reverse. Protectionism shows up. Or they turn around and say, you know what? It's not your fault, Mr. or Mrs. Middle Class. It's their fault. And they point the arrow upwards within a country, and we call that populism, where we go after the elites and the top 1%, et cetera. Uh, and so my argument was these four key trends produced a deflationary pressure that resulted in a lot of political and social dynamics that led to the world we're in today. And those trends were all in existence before COVID entered the scene. Uh, and so my, my argument was COVID was really an accelerator and intensifier of some of those dynamics. And so not to, not to overly belabor the medical uh, analogy, but we had pre-existing conditions before the virus arrived. Given that situation and those trends that don't necessarily seem like they may change anytime soon, how, how do we, in the business community, in the financial community, how do we respond? What do we do to be successful in this environment that we're in right now that is yeah. maybe around for a bit? Yeah. So one of the first things I suggest is that we all, to navigate the uncertainty that plagues our world, need to be thinking about connecting dots across disparate domains. So it's not okay to just look at the world economically. You have to look at it politically. It's not okay to look at the world just economically and politically. You need to think about what's happening in technology and sort of other science and, and engineering fields. It's not okay to just look at those three. You gotta pay attention to what's happening to social or demographic dynamics. Um, and so uh, my, my main message here is that to navigate uncertainty, it's really important to focus on connecting dots, particularly since so many of us for professional success uh, have been suggest have been guided towards a focus on generating dots. So, you know, my, my suggestion here is that sometimes it's okay to not be super deep and, uh, and focused on developing that unique, uh, you know, domain specific insight that sometimes taking a step back and looking at the big picture and connecting dots can actually be more useful. So I think that's, that's sort of the first thing. Uh, the second thing is to just, Embrace the uncertainty. Understand you can't get rid of it, right? And so when you when you get comfortable with that, you start doing things like thinking probabilistically. You know, for business managers that are running, uh, you know, uh, P and Ls and and are trying to estimate uh, particular dynamics, I would suggest right off the bat, if you embrace uncertainty, you no longer develop estimates of what the future is going to have. You don't have point estimates that it's going to be thirty two point six percent, or it's what you're going to say is we're gonna have between 30 and 40% growth, or you're gonna give ranges, because ranges by nature present that uncertainty. They say, we don't actually know. Whereas a specific data point, I think, has the risk of presenting a sense of false precision. Um, and that can delude people into the, oh, it was better than expected, or it was worse than expected. Uh, well, the reality is in the band of what we, should have reasonably expected <laughs> uncertainty would have allowed to transpire. So, you know, I think uh, it's, a, it's a better way to think and a better way to manage is to think in terms of ranges rather than estimates. So as you, and this kind of actually feeds into sort of what you were just talking about. So as you look at different trends in various aspects of the economy, can you talk specifically about one or two industries where you see some sort of big change or inflection point coming 
that our readers should be aware of in terms of risk thinking, risk management? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the fundamental reality is that we're seeing technological change happening in virtually every industry, right? I mean, it would almost be imprudent to suggest that it's going to happen very dramatically in one area and not another. But given uh, the sort of prevalence of thinking around public health and pandemics and sort of what we've seen transpire here recently, um, it's very obvious to me that we're at a step function improvement in our capacity to deal with uh, health issues, particularly public health issues. And I think that the, the COVID uh, tragedy at many levels has proven to be an opportunity and stimulant for innovation on a whole bunch of other levels. Um, whether it's in rapid vaccine development capability, whether it's uh, the ability to use different what they call sort of vaccine development platforms to, to generate a know-how that can be applied to different diseases, uh, we don't know. But, you know, it's taken years and years, decades and decades to come close to, but we haven't yet done it, eradicating polio. It's now actually eradicated, or I guess the technical word is eliminated because it's still elsewhere in the world, but it's eliminated in Africa. It just exists in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We'll probably eradicate polio, but that was a process that took like, long, I mean, a hundred plus years versus I believe that we may be available technologically and capable of doing so with other diseases. We may get rid, we may eradicate death from rabies in humans here. I mean, that may take place in a decade or less, right? I mean, you can sort of see a real step function forward in um, the use of technology applied to public health matters uh, with, with real positive impact on, on sort of human life, if you will. So I think that's one area where you can see a real uh, change because of technology and the know-how. And it may be a combination of whether it's sort of the machine learning and artificial intelligence and the ability to rapidly go through data uh, and, and spot patterns and determine things. It may be the CRISPR technologies that allow us to actually decompose uh, the genetic code of particular uh, or, you know, particular organisms and sort of determine what's causing what where. Uh, so, you know, healthcare generally, I think, is going to be really impacted by what's happening in technology. Okay. So you talk about the challenge of thinking for yourself in the face of big data and AI. Yeah. Some parts of insurance, such as claims handling and underwriting, there is a, a call or a movement for stakeholders to embrace and trust in the data versus relying so much on their experience. How would you respond to this? Yeah, so the way I respond to that is just, it's not either or, right? I mean, like the, these presentations are, are presented as sort of binary choices. I have to be either in the data or my instinct. Why can't we use both? I mean, my book uh, that I published last, last year was called Think for Yourself. And really the message that I'm trying to deliver is, is pretty straightforward. It's we have gotten too extreme in our complete dismissal of experts. And when we, when we dismiss experts, that's not good. But we also go to the other extreme and blindly defer to experts. That's also not good. I'm suggesting a middle ground uh, where uh, the phrase I use, and it's actually the title of a chapter in the book, is keep experts on tap, not on top, which is let's utilize the inputs. Let's not dismiss big data and analytics, that's useful but let's also 
contextualize that data because we understand that that data analytics, the, the sort of, you know, the, the big information flows, they don't have meaning. Those are just data sets, right? So we need to sort of provide context uh, to those silos of insight, uh, but they're not in the decision-making context. So we have to see where they fit, how they fit, and decide their value. And I think that's that's a great response to what I'm seeing in in this field, you know, in this work that we've done looking into these issues in insurance in terms of, you know, having experts with so much, you know, knowledge and historical intelligence on, on the work that they're doing, working to sort of use the data and work smarter and work more efficiently, but know when the data is telling them something that doesn't seem right and be able to call into question those points and say, wait a minute, let's look further at this one. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I think, look, I am not of the camp that technology is imminently going to replace humans everywhere. I am of the camp, I'm in the camp where I believe a human plus technology is better than technology by itself or a human by itself, and that we can actually have one plus one equal more than two. Um, and so uh, that's my current thinking. Obviously, it's evolving, and you know, it'd be interesting to hear uh, where we all think about or what we think about that in you know two, three, five years time from now. But today, I think that's true. Yeah, I'm curious to see your set of trends in five years and, and, and what you're saying there. <laughs> yeah. All right. So back in October last year when you spoke to us, uh, you said, in order to save itself, capitalism needs to install greater societal safety nets and take care of those who have left, been, left behind. How does the business community take part in this work? And what I mean by that is, for example, you mentioned public health earlier, and public health is a part of this. But does that mean a government-run healthcare system? And is that the safety net we're talking about? Or is there a way for the insurance industry to play a role in this, as well as the other areas of, of societal need that are, that are obviously out there? So there's a couple different ways one can address that question. First, let me start at the broadest levels, and then I'll come back to your topic around healthcare specifically. But if we think about what's been transpiring with capitalism is it's allowed inequality to sort of flourish. I mean, I almost don't like using the positive sense of the word flourish, but, but it's true. I mean, inequality has blossomed under capitalism. And in fact, the two are highly correlated, right? In the sense that capitalism provides incentives and the incentives for disproportionate gains are what support innovation and progress. And it's been a enormously positive influence on the world. Capitalism has improved the lives of billions of people, including the human race. It's been an enormously positive thing. However, it can go too far. Uh, the inequality can go too far, I mean. Um, and this was, and not to, not to depress listeners or, or readers here, uh, but this is what Karl Marx and, you know, was worried about. I mean, the communist logic was you know, return on capital would go through the roof, return on labor would get pinched, workers of the world unite, overthrow those who put the bonds on you, etc. And eventually, actually, Marx and Engels wrote, from each according to their ability and to each according to their needs. So that is an attempt at sort of equalizing, right? Getting rid of the inequality. Uh, now, I don't think we're, we're anywhere near that risk, but 
in order for capitalism to continue, we have to accommodate and make sure that those who are left behind from capitalism are given some basic level of you know, dignity and sort of life, if you will. Um, and, and that is what I'm talking about. Now, businesses can do that and participate in that in numerous ways. The first is, you know, you've seen companies such as JP Morgan, Amazon, and others that proactively raise their wages above the minimum wage for their hourly workers. Uh, why do they do that? Well, I mean, at some level, it makes sense, right? You want your workers to be able to pay for the goods you're producing, right? You don't want to have workers that can't afford the goods you're producing, um, et cetera. So there, there, there's some value and logic. Maybe you can say it's just the largest companies who would feel empowered to do that. But I would suggest to you that if everyone thought in those terms, uh, it could be business that was leading this charge to save capitalism. Secondly, uh, when it comes to healthcare, this is a really complicated topic, as you are, I'm sure, aware. Um, I can take both sides of this argument. One, I could say, why is it that healthcare is tied to employment? What, it's sort of a, like, so hold on a sec. If I don't have a job, I don't need healthcare? Like, why does that make sense? Uh, like, the logic of tying one's healthcare to one's job historically when everyone had the same job for life, et cetera, might've made some sense because it was a sense of community and, and de facto your, your, your employer was your patron saint to take care of you and your life, et cetera, and make sure you had healthcare. Maybe, but today as we're finding more fluid labor markets and people moving around more, you, you can very simply ask the question of, should there not be a basic level of healthcare for everyone? independent of their employment status. Um, and you know, then you get into the debate, what is basic, what's allowed, what above it, et cetera. And you know, so, so that's one way to answer it. The other way to answer it is, look, government's proven to be inefficient in most things it's taken on. It becomes bureaucratic. It's not efficient to have the government involved, et cetera. And so therefore, you know, what we need is more, we need less regulation and more unleashing of private sector innovation to handle this, right? Uh, a 22-year-old who works out frequently and is in great shape should not have to bear the burdens of, uh, you know, the risks because of a 75-year-old person who's part of the same uh, organization or pool that's been smoking for 45 years, right? I mean, that's sort of, yeah, okay, we don't need to lump these. And now with data analytics, private sector uh, healthcare providers can manage the sort of economics of healthcare delivery accordingly, right? And so that there's a different way to deal with things. Um, so I don't have a strong view, but I know there's debate. There's a, there's a two-sided debate here and I could easily present both scenarios. Uh, but uh, I think the easier uh, way to answer your question of what is capitalism, what do businesses do to support capitalism? It's, it's really to go back to, to thinking more in terms of stakeholders, um, and, and workers as part of the equation, not just shareholders. And maybe in that thinking, there's a way to come up with that sort of minimum basic level of care that follows you around, right? Wherever you go in your life and work, um, that could be an innovation of the private sector potentially. Sure, and the, I mean, again, like most things, we we talk about them as binary, but they're not binary. They're not binary. Very few things I know in life are actually either or. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. There is definitively a role 
for the private sector to play in whatever healthcare system emerges, period. Like we know that. Likewise, there's definitely a role for the government to play in whatever healthcare system we come up with. Absolutely, I think that's a very fair, fair way to look at it. <laughs> All right, so sort of winding things down here. The last time we, we heard from you, there, there were several big things that have since happened um, in globally. So, well, in the US, we've had our presidential election. We've had a successful vaccine development for COVID. And we've now just recently had finally Brexit occur. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the effects of these kind of major events on the outlook for 2021 and, and maybe your five year look down the road. Sure. So, well, first of all, it's all part of the same logic that I've been discussing as sort of these trends, right? If you think about what is Brexit, Brexit is saying uh, Brexit was the outgrowth of a desire for people to effectively blame others for some of these trends, right? Which is, hey, we're not going to listen to Belgium. No, this is a, we're going to prioritize Britain for make Britain great again. I mean, you could have had that tagline, right? I mean, that was the logic that sold it. Um, and so, by the way, it wasn't just make Britain great again. It was make America great again. We could have make Philippines great again, make India great again. You can go around the world. It's not Britain specific. These are global trends. So I think of, I, I view that as sort of consistent. In fact, one might even go so far as to say, what's next for Europe? I mean, do we see a congealing of what should, well, I shouldn't say should. Either Europe has to turn into the United States of Europe where European countries give up some degree of sovereignty to a central authority and sort of all live within their means, uh, or it's likely you see a fragmentation and maybe you see Italexit, I guess they are referring to it as, you know, Italy exiting, it's sort of, you know, other exits. Uh, is that possible? Um, I don't know if 2021 brings that, but it's something on my radar screen for a three to five year view that you could see countries other than Britain sort of leave the system. Uh, so that's how I think about what's happening over in Europe. Um, in terms of what's happened here in the US uh, with the politics, uh, one of my uh, predictions here in, the, uh, in, in my annual set of five-year forward predictions is that we'll actually see the emergence of a third political party, that people are finding um, the polarization just too extreme. And, you know, I think there's a large swath of American voters, particularly, that are saying, you know what, we want a party that just puts the national interest first and tries to move forward on a reasonable basis to help us all sort of achieve our potential. Like, and that's really something that I think it feels primed for something like a, a third political party to emerge and actually get traction. Um, and, you know, the, the interesting thing is even the emergence of it, whether or not it gets traction, it may cause more reasonable behavior on the part of other parties, <laughs> on the existing parties, right? It may force them, the very threat of a third party may bring them more towards less polarized perspectives. Uh, and then in terms of what's, what, what you mentioned with the vaccine development, and, you know, I think that's just another indicator of what's happening with science, technology, progressing rapidly forward, uh, a, a real success to develop a vaccine so quickly. You know, I know there's some, some 
some questions about its efficacy uh, at some level, about this mutation that's transpiring, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, it may not have been the absolute perfect silver bullet, but uh, it's an indication of things going in the right direction and a real success of science, technology, and actually a partnership with government and the private sector and public sector working together to achieve something uh, in, a, in a rapid Time frame, so I think that's a big win and one we should view as positive. So um, yeah, I mean those are those are some of my thoughts, at least on the topics you raised. But I think 2021 um, is likely to be uh, another year of lots of uncertainty, uh, a handful of cross currents economically, politically. Uh, I think we'll see more technology innovation. Uh, I worry about big tech being broken up as a political pressure rises because they get monopolistic in power, et cetera. I worry about cyber risks. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that I worry about. Uh, and uh, I would just suggest uh, either for, for you or even listeners to uh, the, the list of 21 predictions that's available uh, that I posted uh, would be an interesting place to, to find some of those other thoughts. The yeah. cyber topic is really big for our community and I kind of wanted to go into it with you but I was sort of afraid because you can go so far into that topic. Yeah I mean I've spent a lot of time thinking about cyber specifically the geopolitical implications of the Chinese personnel hack uh, personnel office of personnel management hack as well as Russia's more recent stuff uh, what's being referred to as the cyber Pearl Harbor uh, by many people and the long run implications of this is we don't actually understand or know the full extent of the of the breach, so to say, and what residual monitoring and vulnerabilities may still be there. And so there's an increasing call from people I've talked to. I've talked to a couple of congressmen that said, we just need to burn down these systems and rebuild them because we will never understand what Trojan horse is hidden in there. And we need to literally rebuild our entire infrastructure digital infrastructure like now is that really on that's what is being considered well i think these are two individuals that happen to be congressmen that are thinking that, that are thinking in this way i don't think it's being considered it hasn't been stated publicly in this way and i think one of the reasons it's not is you know you don't want to necessarily create some alarm if in fact those residual ongoing vulnerabilities are there i mean yeah. what if what if we find out I don't know, seven years from now, some personnel data was connected. This, uh, what, was it because of the breach that happened with the Chinese in 2015 or 16? It was, well, you get, it's hard to connect these dots over time. And this data being digital is not disappearing and is archiving and is being pushed into big data systems and surveillance systems. And you, know, you, you worry, you, you read about and sort of Jack Ma and the Chinese saying they want all the financial transactions and Oh my God, like, I mean, you can imagine a surveillance capitalist state that's very problematic on a lot of levels. Do you feel like the data privacy in the US is, is sort of way behind? I do, I do, yeah. In fact, it's again, one of the predictions I put out there this year. I think uh, I'm very disturbed by what we can call the surveillance capitalist logic of US big tech, um, right? It's not just that Google is reading your emails. It's that Google also has your Fitbit data and can connect the dots between, oh, your heart rate went up when you were reading that email. That's interesting. We have a timestamp. So now we know what your emotional state is. Oh, we know that you went onto your Gmail on your phone and then you went to Twitter and you looked at this thing and then you went to Amazon and bought that thing. Okay, clearly whatever you read and went to is influenced you to buy that thing. So now we can connect the dots to what may be 
forcing you to make decisions. Then, well, we also have Nest. So now we know when you got home and when you left home and what your behavior is when you're at home versus before you were at home. And so we can connect some dots in interesting ways there. And then, I mean, you sort of put all this thing together, they can, big tech and big data can combine to individually customize the worldview each of us gets. And so suddenly you have to ask yourself, what is reality? And so this is part of the reason why I think big tech does need to be regulated. But it's also part of the reason why I insist people use multiple sources for every data point they sort of rely on. And they try to triangulate. Uh, so if you're watching, I mean, use an example that a lot of people will recognize. If you are a devoted follower of CNN, please also watch Fox News. If you are a devoted follower of Fox News, turn on MSNBC. Like just there's there every single lens, every single perspective is biased and incomplete. It's no one's it's structural. And so as such, if you want to have any hope of seeing a reality out there, you need to see multiple lenses, uh, use multiple lenses to connect dots. I really believe that. And I think surveillance capitalism enables these, these sort of filter bubbles to happen where the world you see in your feeds on your computer that you think is representative of the real world is a biased perspective that will be different than me sitting next to you on my laptop. I could be sitting next to you and the same sites will serve different information. That's problematic. That was Dr. Mansha Armani telling us to connect the dots and much more. Check out the rest of our podcasts at leadersedge.com. Mm-hmm.